You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. My name is Leanne. I have the privilege of serving as a community group leader with my husband, Paul. And today's scripture passage is from Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and Romans 8, 1 through 4 from the NIV. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Romans 8, 1 through 4 says... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is God's word. Thanks, Leanne. Plug it in. Also, I ran eight times up and down the stairs trying to get my notes to print just now. So I'm sorry. I'm not nervous. I'm just out of shape. Okay. So we're continuing in our study through the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're asking the question, Does the law even matter? We're looking at Jesus' words. Leanne just read them from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for every part of your word. Thank you for every part of your law. We believe that every single word spoken by you is profitable. It is not just right and good, but it's good for us. And so we ask today that our hearts would be open to receive from you through your word. Jesus, you had an intention when you spoke these particular words. We ask that we would um, hear from you with that intention. I ask that I would be connected to your heart for what you intended to say and how you intended to say it. We ask you to speak to us specifically and prophetically like only you can now. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great stories from the Civil War era is the story of Harriet Tubman who 
ran the Underground Railroad where she rescued and helped bring to freedom upwards of 70 or more slaves. And on one occasion, it's reported that she had a group coming from the South, bringing them North where they would get freedom. And one of the men um, in their group started to get scared and discouraged and considered going back to his plantation and resubmitting himself to his old master. What did Harriet Tubman do? She took a rifle, pointed it in his face and said, you either go on with us or you die now. She was not willing for him to give up his freedom or the freedom of the rest of the people in the group because him going back would have meant that he, not just meant that he would have been killed, but the rest of the group would have been killed. All of us, regardless of where we've come from, desire to be free. But we often forget that boundaries are part of that freedom. And as we learn in this story, the do nots are just as important as the do's. In order for people to be free, there has to be some rules. Any musician understands this. No musician understanding the rules of musical scales and the importance of playing in time and in tune with the rest of the musicians thinks, dude, but I'm, I'm so limited. It is within the rules that they are able to actually excel in the writing of the music. It's true in relationships. Proper boundaries being set up in any specific relationship are actually what allow the relationship to thrive. But of course, the big question is, but what are the right boundaries? What are the right limitations? What are the right do's? What are the right do nots? We live in an age where it's kind of subjective. It's kind of up to everyone and each, each person's opinion, whatever is right in the moment, whatever we are feeling, we should do that. And then we should validate what everybody else is feeling about any specific thing. But Jesus here claims authority over every single opinion, every single perspective, including every single one of ours here today. So how are we to understand Jesus, the law, and, as the, and the law as it relates to ourselves? Well, there's four things that we need to see, but first we need to understand, understand something about Jesus and the law. What is Jesus' relationship to the law? So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna spend just a few more minutes kind of doing some introductory work, if you will, before we get into these four things that I wanna see. Answering this question, what is Jesus' relationship to the law. Well, he tells us right off the bat in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus's public ministry, his, his preaching, his teaching, he's, he's healing people. He's speaking about how God's grace has come to save sinners. It was suspicious to a lot of people who were listening to it, especially the religious leaders, because they thought, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, he's doing away with the law. He's like trying to replace the law with something else. And they're, what's happening in their minds is they're like, Jesus, what about the rest of scripture? I understand, okay, God's grace has come to save sinners. Okay, but what about the rest of scripture? Jesus, what about the law? And Jesus' response is astounding. He says, everything you have read in the law is actually fulfilled in me. In other words, 
all of scripture, all of the commands are actually about me. What is Jesus' relationship to the, Jesus' relationship to the law? Jesus does not compete with the law. He completes the law. If you are to rightly understand the Bible from Genesis, not from Matthew, but from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you must look at it through Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, um, but before he had revealed himself to all of his disciples, he reveals himself to just a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. We actually looked at the story a couple weeks ago. And he appears to them on the road and he's like disguised in whatever, some ancient hoodie or something. They can't, under, they can't see who he is. They can't uh, tell who he is. And, and they're, they're sad. And Jesus is like, hey, what's wrong, guys? What are you, what are you guys talking about? What are you doing? What, why are you so sad? And they're like, dude, our Messiah. We thought he was our Messiah. He just died. Like he's gone now. Everything's ruined. What does Jesus say to them? He says, oh, foolish ones in Luke, in Luke 24, how slow to believe all that the law and the prophets have spoken. Is it not right that the Messiah should suffer first before he enters into his glory? And then check this out. It goes on to say in Luke 24, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus started at the very words of Moses, like back in Genesis, and was like, I want to show you every single thing that was said in every single passage in the entire Old Testament and how it revealed me. The point is this, if you want to know Jesus, study the scriptures including the Old Testament, because they are all about him. It's how we it's part of how we understand his identity, his mission, his character. All of it points to him, especially the Old Testament laws. Jesus does not compete with the law. He completes the law. The second thing we need to see about Jesus and the law is that Jesus does not cancel the law. He clarifies it. The life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus bring into full clarity all the values of the law. That means that it is now Jesus who governs the understanding and application of the law. But the natural question is, okay, yeah, but what part of the law, dude? Because there's weird stuff. I read the book of Leviticus before. Like there's, I'm thinking mostly about the pork thing. Like really, Jesus, no bacon? Is that what we're talking about here? And the dairy thing from cows, no cheese? Is that what we're talking about? There's some weird things, right? There's some like ceremonial things. There's some ritual things. There's some purification things. There's some civil things that were specific to what was happening in Israel. What is that? Is that what we're talking about here, Jesus? Because it does seem in some instances that Jesus ups the ante on the law, right? We'll see later in the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, the law says don't commit adultery, but if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. Law says don't murder, but if you hate, you've committed murder. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So it seems like he ups the ante, but in other areas, it seems like he's, he's clarifying it in a way that is like, that's not what it meant. So what is it then? Well, we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but we do need to understand a couple of things. It's very simple. First of all, regarding the ceremonial laws, because Jesus is the true priest, the true temple, and the true sacrifice, we are to no longer observe the ceremonial or dietary laws connected to ritual purity in the Old Testament. Translation, order the bacon and cheese on the burger. <laughs> Number two, the civil laws. Because the church 
is made up of men and women from every tribe, every nation, and every culture of the world. God's kingdom community is no longer a single nation state. It's not just Israel. So this changes how we view the civil laws in the Old Testament. But the third kind of laws, the moral laws, the ethical and moral laws are what matter and continue to this day, which is why Jesus addresses the 10 commandments, the moral matters here in the Sermon on the Mount, but not the ceremonial or civil matters. He talks about the morality of the commandments and how they continue today. Or said differently, the law in the hands of Jesus is the plumb line for Christian ethics. Okay, so now that we have a, a basic understanding of how Jesus relates to the law and how he's come to fulfill it, he's come to complete it, he doesn't compete with it, he's come to clarify it. There's four things that we need to see here from the words of Jesus and throughout the Sermon on the Mount regarding the law. And the first one is this, Jesus shows us the rightness of the law. Jesus shows us the rightness of the law. There is a temptation to think, okay, I've come to Jesus now. The law doesn't matter at all. It's all about grace now, right? It is a new covenant. So the old covenant has been done away with. But you may be surprised that that's not how Jesus talks about the law. Again, verse 18, he says, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is not abolishing the law. He is actually exalting it. He shows us here that the law is not broken. The law does not need to be tweaked. It's not outdated. The law is right. You look at the law and you're like, yeah, dude, but this is hard. This is like a lot here and you're right. But the law is not hard because it's bad. It's hard because it's right. Don't cheat, the law says, right. Don't steal, right. Don't take advantage of others, right. Don't covet, right. Don't kill people, right. Love neighbor, love God, right. The law is right and it is good. And as such, The law teaches us what God is like. What does God love? What does God hate? When you want to get to know someone, you get to know what they love and what they hate. God reveals these things through his word. His commands reveal his character. The law of God is not just some like arbitrary thing that he threw out. He's like, I'm just going to put a bunch of rules together, see if the people can do it. It reveals who he is. It shows us what matters to him. The law says, don't cheat. The law says, don't steal. Don't take advantage of others. Be merciful, be kind, be loving. Lay down your life for others. What's God like? He doesn't cheat. He doesn't steal. He doesn't take advantage of others. He is loving. He is kind. He is compassionate. He lays down his life for others. The law teaches us what God is like. And the law teaches us what God intended humanity to be like. In God's law, we find the foundation for human society containing ethics for all time. How are we to function? 
It teaches us about how, how we're to relate to one another. It teaches us about truth-telling, about valuing human life, about character, about honor, and not just for some specific group of people at a specific time in a specific place, but for the whole world. Or said more simply, and I love this, the Ten Commandments reveal God's handbook for human flourishing. The law of God says, here is how you are to live if you want to fully flourish as human beings. And also, here's what will happen if you obey the commands. The opposite of flourishing will happen. Destruction, dissonance, division, chaos, and death. So then the law is not some necessary evil. It is good. It is holy. It is right. This is why Jesus talks about the law the way that he does in verse 19 when he says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law doesn't lower or bend to humanity or society. It is already right. It is already good. It is not a necessary evil. It is necessary, period. This means then that the law doesn't change according to how we feel or according to how culture is evolving. The law, because it's already right, it is already a representation of God and his character. It's already holy. Even though we're constantly trying to fit it into our own image and our own understanding, our own experiences, it cannot change. Jesus goes on in verse 19 to say, therefore you are to not minimize the law. So that means then that we're not at liberty to pick and choose what we do and don't like. Yes, we are to understand the difference between the moral the ceremonial and the civil laws, but we are not at liberty to choose what laws we do or do not keep. So it really becomes a question of authority then. Who is the authority on these things? Is it you? Is it your opinion? Really? Your all-wise, all-knowing perspective of what is and is not right for human flourishing in all the earth, for all the people, for all time? Your opinion? My opinion is what matters? That, am I, I'm the authority because that's what culture says. My opinion, whatever I think, my experience, whatever feels right, whatever's like, ah, oh, it just doesn't feel good. That, just, that must not be it. Or like, ah, oh, that, yes, yes, that, that's my truth. That's mine for all the world? I get to choose. It can't be me. I am not the all wise one. You are not the all wise one. And yet we try to let experience govern it, right? After the the enlightening, the postmodernism, it's like, you don't look out anymore. The traditional mindset said, look out, look at others. The modern mindset is like, look within whatever I feel. But the Bible says, look up. Don't look out. Don't look in, look up. We are not and cannot be the authority on what is and is not right for human flourishing in all the earth. God, who is the sustainer, the creator and the sustainer of all life on earth, he's the only all wise one. He's the only eternal one. He must then, he has to be, there is no option other than him to be the only authority. This is why his commands matter. This is why his law is right. He knows what he's talking about. 
And there's a warning here from Jesus to not minimize this. He says, if you do, in verse 19, you're gonna be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. There's two schools of thought of what this means. Some people think that least in the kingdom of heaven is, is like an eternal thing when you get um, to heaven at the end of life here, that there's gonna be like first and second class citizens and those who have uh, treated these things honorably will be like the first class the other ones will be like the second class. But I think Jesus is saying something else here. I think, I think what he's talking about is about being a right representative of his kingdom. And that's the other view on this. If you have a low view of God's commands, then you're gonna be a poor representative of his kingdom. If the king establishes boundaries and guidelines and descriptors of what his kingdom is like, and then you minimize those things, you're a bad representative. Tim loves to talk about the example of, of vegans, the vegan who's like, dude, I'm a vegan. And then you go to the habit and you order the bacon and cheese on the thing, right? You misrepresent vegans worldwide. Opposed to the vegan who actually opts for the possibly slightly less flavorful veggie burger, at least they represent the vegan kingdom well. The person who values God's design for human life and flourishing through God's commands values the heart and nature of God. They are the ones who, as Jesus says, practice and teach the commands of God and they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I think what Jesus is saying here is these are the people who are the right and honorable representatives of his kingdom. Now, all of this might sound a little bit like an endorsement for legalism. Jesus is really exalting the law here, but that's not what he's saying. He's not endorsing legalism because though the law gives kingdom instruction, it does not give kingdom admission. It's not just that Jesus shows us the rightness of the law, but Jesus also shows us secondly and briefly the inadequacy of religion. Jesus shows us here the inadequacy of religion. He's making a big deal about the law. So it may sound like legalism. That is until you keep reading his words. Yes, the law is right and good, but it is not adequate to get you into the kingdom of heaven. It gives you instruction, but it does not give you access. Jesus is also saying here, that no matter how hard you work or how good you are at trying, trying, you cannot earn your way into the kingdom. The law is right and good, yes, but in the hands of sinful people, we take the law and we say, I can do this. I can do this. I can earn my place away. If I just, okay, if I just do this, that's what the Pharisees were doing, right? If I just do this and do that and do that, then I will find myself in the kingdom of heaven. But you can't. You will never ever, ever be good enough. And Jesus emphasizes this point by referring to the most well-known, well-respected, religious, most right and righteous people of that time in verse 20 when he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that is the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were revered in Jesus' time. These were the people that 
everybody was looking up to. These were the guys who were, yes, they're gonna bring back the culture to God. These, are, these guys are leading it. They're gonna bring us back to God. They were honored. They were esteemed. They were respected, man. If I could, dude, if I could just be as righteous, half as righteous as a Pharisee, I'd be on the right track. But Jesus comes in and says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, no one, not even the scribes and Pharisees are righteous enough to get in. But Jesus goes on, I'm sorry, because Jesus goes on to show us that it's not just about keeping the rules on the exterior, which nobody could even do that, but it's actually about the heart. It's actually about the motives, which is what Jesus will get at in the following passages. We'll talk about that in a minute. So Jesus wants us to see not only is the law right and good, but keeping it is actually not even adequate. Because no matter how hard we try, we can never perfectly meet the standard of the law. In fact, the law was designed to show us how jacked up we really are. Which is the next thing that we see here. Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount show us, thirdly, the depravity of humanity. Jesus goes on after this in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about how um, people's idea of religion is very outward it's very exterior. It's very behavioral. And so Jesus starts addressing that stuff later, right? He's like, hey, when you pray, don't go stand out in the middle of Main Street in Ventura and be like, God, so everybody knows how righteous you are. When you want to be generous, don't post it on social media. and be like, I don't know. I just saw this guy. He needed something. So I gave him 20 bucks. And I don't know. It's just the right thing to do. Like, don't do that. Right? Jesus is like, don't do that. He's talking about the external part of it. And he's saying, when you do that, it's, it's, it's just external and it's actually deceptive because you're giving the appearance to everybody and to yourself that you're right with God, but who knows what's actually happening inside of the heart. One of the most powerful things about the law though is that it's intended to expose us. It's actually intended to expose us. Like I said, the law is not just about the external, it's actually about the heart which is part of what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He'll go on to say things like, I mentioned this earlier, the law says don't murder. All right, awesome. Most of us have not done that, thank God. But if you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, you've already murdered them in your heart. The law says don't commit adultery. But if you lust after a person who's not your wife or your husband, you have already committed adultery. He's getting to the heart. Unlike other ancient laws that were given, the law of God is always about getting to the motive. But we don't think about laws like this. Can you imagine if our traffic laws were like this? You go up to a red light and you think about running it, but you don't. But you still get a ticket in the mail and it just says, yeah, but I know you want it to. <laughs> we, don't, we don't think about laws as having motives. And this is how we try to treat the law of God. We're like, dude, just keep it like a traffic law, bro. Don't like look at my heart. I didn't do it. And God's like, yeah, but you wanted to. I'm gonna get to the heart. We wanna keep it about our behavior. And God's like, yeah, but your behavior is a symptom of the heart. 
I don't want to change your behavior, God says. I want to change your heart. Because when your heart changes, your behavior naturally follows. But we don't want that. That's too deep. That's too hard. That's too out of our control. And so we often opt for religion. Because religion gives us a way to control God or avoid God, which is what we really want. God, I crossed all your T's. I dotted all the I's. So give me my stuff now. It's a way for us to control God. Or I'm not in danger of judgment. I don't even have to like go over there with God. Like I've, I've performed rightly. It's a way for us to avoid him altogether. Or we break the law and it's like, dude, I, okay, I'm just, I'm gonna stay over here then. I just don't even wanna think about it. I'm just not even gonna think about God and what he said. I'm just gonna avoid him altogether. But when you live like this as a result, you really, you're living a religious life and you become hard, harsh, and critical. Some of us know people like this. We've become some of us like this ourselves. Or you'll end up being in complete and utter despair. And this will shape not only the way that you relate to God, but how you relate to everyone else. Your entire life will be based on moral performance. Okay, if I can just do this and do that, then I'll be good with the relationships with the people in my life. If I can just perform right at work, then I'll get the attention and the affirmation that I was waiting for. Or you'll end up isolating yourself from everyone because of shame. We don't wanna look at the heart and what it does, but if we don't and we live like this, we live religiously like this, it actually leaves us cold and condemned. Because when you realize that God is trying to get to the heart and you're unwilling to just like surrender yourself to him and lean on him for his grace and his forgiveness, then you actually end up pushing yourself away from him, resisting him and hardening your heart. Jesus says, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, you cannot even get anywhere near it. Unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees, what kind of righteousness is greater than the Pharisees? A righteousness of the heart. God wants purity at the source. God wants this love coming from inside out in allegiance to him above all else. Pure motives, pure thoughts. You have to let God into the deep places of your heart. So actually, in light of this, legalism doesn't take the law too far. It actually doesn't take it far enough. All you rule keepers out there, all you people are like, dude, what are you doing? You gotta do that. You gotta, you little legalists in the room. You thought you had a really high view of the law, but Jesus is actually saying, your view is too low. You need to increase your view of the law. You have brought it down to a level where you can manage it where you can control it, but you actually need to increase your view of God's law and you need to keep increasing it until it gets too big for you. And once it's too big for you, then it's right. And when it's too big for you, then you become desperate for God. That's what Jesus wants us to do in relationship to the law. As one author wrote, a low view of the law always brings legalism in religion. 
a high view of the law makes a seeker after grace. And this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 20. And this is where it starts to get good. If you felt like for the last 20 minutes, I have dehydrated your soul. Let this be like a cold glass of water. When you really listen to the law of God, it exposes you. It shows you who you truly are. You are deprived. You are desperate, unable to save yourself. And that is the point. Here's the cold glass of water. Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law is a schoolmaster saying, you can't do it. You're not good enough. You will never be good enough. You need a savior. You need faith, not in yourself, but in the only one whose righteousness far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You need Jesus. So we see the rightness of the law. It is good. It is right. It is perfect. It is holy. We see the inadequacy of religion. We cannot earn our way into the kingdom of heaven. We see the depravity of man. The law exposes our wicked hearts and our need for a savior. And lastly, the law points us to the beauty of Christ. The law is good. The law is right, but it cannot make us good and right. However, through faith in the only good and right one, we become good and right before God. We take on the perfect righteousness of Christ by faith. Read 1 Corinthians 1. Read Romans 5. Read Romans 10. Read 2 Corinthians 5. I put them in a little mashup here. I'm gonna put them on the screen. We are declared righteous and fully accepted by God, not on the basis of any righteousness in us, but only through faith, looking outside ourselves and joining us to a righteousness, not of our own doing, but of Jesus who is our righteousness. The law puts a demand on us that we cannot bear But this brings us to the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus satisfies the demand of the law for us. Imagine, if you will, a husband who is always right. (laughs) This lady said, yeah, right. (laughs) A husband who is always right but never lifts a finger to help with anything. Demands perfect performance, but provides no relief, no assistance, and therefore no peace, no rest in the home. And he never dies. Romans chapter seven says, that's what the law is. It demands 
perfect behavior and never lifts a finger to help you. And it never dies. But through Christ, you do die. And when you are reborn, you are reborn out from under the weight of that harsh husband and into the arms of a loving, accepting, life-imparting husband, Jesus Christ, who still has a perfect standard, but instead of demanding perfect righteousness from you, provides it for you. He lifts the burden and weight of the law and carries it himself so that you can now walk in rest and peace and joy and life and freedom. Jesus didn't lower the law. He rose to it and fulfilled it. He didn't lower the law, but he did lower himself even to the point of death. And on the cross, he took the penalty of your sin, your failure, your disobedience against God and the law. And though he kept the law perfectly, he was treated as the worst lawbreaker so that you might be accepted by God as a perfect law keeper. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. When do you ever get rewarded for something that you did not do unless it's a lie? And yet that is exactly what Jesus has done for us in the cross. You are rewarded with riches beyond imagination for nothing that you did. And it's not a lie. And so when you trust in him, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. So Jesus satisfies the demand of the law for you, but also Jesus creates a law-fulfilling heart within you. He satisfies the perfect demand for you, but then he creates a law-fulfilling heart within you. We'll end with this. I just want to talk about it for a few minutes. He gives you a new heart. This is what's so crazy about the gospel. When he gives you a spirit, he changes your heart. And things that you used to just like lust after, drive after, run after, you're like, I might still be tempted to do those things because there is still a residue of my sinful, fleshly old person inside, but I don't want to do it. He changes your heart. He changes your passions. And so we do follow the commands of God as interpreted and realized by Jesus, but now we're not crushed by them because Jesus was already crushed uh, crushed for us. And some of you might be saying, yeah, but Paul said in Galatians, right? Didn't he say like, we're not under the law anymore? Aren't we under grace? Yes. But what Paul was talking about, he's not saying you shouldn't obey the moral law of God. What he's talking about when he says you're not under the law is he's saying you don't rely on the law. You don't have to rely on the law anymore. You don't have to try to meet this perfect standard. You rely upon grace. You are free, friends, from trying to prove yourself. You're free from trying to do it all. You're you're free from trying to earn God's favor and his grace. You don't do it for his favor. You do it from his favor. You already have it. Like a father who's like, dude, I love you. I love you. And they're like, dude, I don't want to disobey dad. He loves me. I love him. I don't want to disobey God now. Our motives change when we come to Jesus. It used to be like, I'm motivated by trying to get acceptance and oh my gosh, what's going to happen to me? I'm motivated by fear. We're not motivated by those things anymore. Now we're motivated by gratitude. We're like, Lord, you did this for me. 
You did this for me. Thank you. Thank you. It's like, my kids all have different love languages, right? One of my kids' love languages is quality time. And it's like, man, we go and we spend quality time with this one of our kids. And it's like, they just come back and they're just loving and generous. And it's like, I didn't even do anything. Man, we're, they're grateful. They don't even, I don't even know if they realize it. They're just, they're grateful though for the way that we've loved them. God has loved us. And so we're like, gosh, Lord, I'm thankful the way you saved me. I, 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 want, I want to obey your law. I want to obey rightly. And we're motivated by an example now. Like a parent, I'm sorry, like a kid who looks at their parent and is just like, dude, that's rad. I want to be like dad. I want to be like mom. I want to emulate them. Guys, the life of Jesus is insane. Some of you guys are really ambitious about accomplishing some stuff. I talked to a guy this week who told me about his five-year plan. Move out of state, buy some property. I was like, sick. Have you seen what Jesus did in three years? Three years. When I look at the life of Jesus, he doesn't just show us what God is like. He shows us what humanity was intended to be like. Jesus perfectly fulfills the law and in doing so, he shows us what a perfectly flourishing human life looks like. And now we're motivated by that example. We're like, gosh, Jesus, I wanna live in freedom. He was fully alive, fully free, fully being who the father had made him to be, operating in all of his gifts, fully connected with the spirit, freeing people, healing people. People were being saved. People were then being liberated to be the fullest uh, emulation of who God had made them to be, walking in their own gifts and their own callings. What Jesus is doing, all that. I wanna do that. Don't you wanna do that? Jesus is our example. We're now motivated by this life of Jesus. And speaking of life, we're now motivated by life. Guys, you don't have to be motivated any longer by performance or like, oh, fear, whatever. It's like, Dude, let's be honest. When you walk in sin, it starts to bring death in you, right? It brings death in your relationships. It brings death in your connection with the Lord. It brings death inside. It brings dissonance. I don't want that. I don't want that. And so I'm not motivated by fear. I don't have to be afraid, but I am motivated by, by life now. I'm afraid of death. I'm like, gosh, dude, I don't want death residing in me. And so now I'm motivated by life and I'm motivated by love. Romans tells us in chapter 13, it says this, oh, no one, anything except for love. All the laws, don't commit adultery, don't cheat, don't steal, don't lie. They can all be summed up in this. Love your neighbor. For love, it's a fulfillment of the law. Friends, now because of the way that God has loved us, motivated by love, we can say, God, I wanna follow you. I wanna obey you. I wanna live within the boundaries that you have set up because I want my life to be fully alive, fully flourishing, fully emulating Jesus, full of gratitude and motivated by love. This is the worst news ever followed by the best news possible. It's what the law was intended to do. Truth is we can never come close to even getting anywhere near the kingdom, but through the gospel of Christ, the gates are open wide to the kingdom and the arms of the father are ready to embrace us. So Christian, as we move into a time of response right now in the second set of worship, I just wanna encourage you 
to once again declare your need for God to him. Just say, gosh, Lord, I've been trying to do it on my own, but you have given me the power of your spirit. You have given me the power of your spirit in me to work a new heart within me. If there's something that you've been hiding from him, now is the time to just come and truth tell, just confess it. To confess doesn't mean to say, I'm sorry. It means literally to tell the truth. So come and tell him the truth. Just tell him the truth and receive his grace today. Receive his grace. The prayer team is gonna be up on the right and the left. Come and get prayer from them. And if you're not a believer, today you need to know like, dude, talking about the law, if you felt like, frick, dude, Christianity sucks. This is heavy. No, 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 no. The law sucks. It's heavy. (laughs) It is right and it is good and it is pure, but the like obeying it, trying to walk in that sucks. Because the intention of it was to point us to Jesus and say, that's right, you're never gonna be able to do this, but Jesus did it on your behalf. And when you put your faith in him, his righteousness becomes your righteousness today. You can trust in the finished work of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the way that you didn't leave us under the weight of an undoable law, but provided a way for us to be saved and for a way for the burden to be lifted for us. We just confess today, Lord, that we need you. We confess that we need you, God. So we ask now that our hearts would respond to you. Some of us are feeling super stoked. Some of us are feeling heavy. Some of us are feeling encouraged. Some may be feeling discouraged. Thank you that you can meet each one of us exactly where we're at. Thank you that you are the all wise one who knows how to do that. Thank you that you can come and speak into the deep recesses of our souls. And we thank you, Jesus, for the way that you have fully and completely satisfied the demands of the law. All things have been fulfilled in you. And so now we can look to you and just receive from you. We wanna do that now, God. We just wanna say, wow, Lord, we need you. Just once again, over and over. Every day I wanna wake up and say, Lord, I need you. I need you. So we do that now. As I said, friends, let's take this time to respond to him in whatever way seems appropriate for you. Our prayer team is available on the right and the left. We have, we have a prayer ministry because the Bible intended us, I mean, God intended us to not do things in isolation, but to do things in community. And so one of the ways that we do that is when we have a need, we, we ask other people to bring it to God with us. And so these people don't just wanna pray for you, they wanna pray with you. They wanna bring you to the feet of Jesus. And so I would encourage you to come and receive prayer. And also in that, it's an opportunity for you to confess. Maybe it's a weakness, maybe it's a sin, 
Maybe it's just a, a wrong mindset. Maybe it's a religious thing. Tell the truth. To confess, it means tell the truth. These people are here. You can tell them the truth and they can pray for you. They can bring the need to God with you. Also want to encourage you to come and utilize the carpets at the front of the stage. The reason the carpets are here is for us to physically posture ourselves in the way that we know our hearts ought to be posturing itself. Sometimes we can't control our emotions, right? But we can control our bodies. And so I would encourage you to take a posture, get on your knees, get on your face, open your hands and allow that to, allow that to kind of lead your heart toward God. And finally, there's communion elements at the front of the stage. Gosh, if there was ever a Sunday to think about the cross, in regards to the heavy, unbearable weight of the law, Jesus fully satisfied the demands of the perfect law for us so that now us who are so jacked and so imperfect and so failing all the time with such impure motives can be fully righteous and fully clean and fully pure, fully alive and fully free because of what Jesus has done. Let the cross, as you take the communion elements, let the cross be a celebration. Let this be like you're, you're, you're shooting off fireworks as you take the bread and the cup. It is a physical representation, a physical celebration of what Christ has done for us. Let's respond to him now.